we have opportunity today to continue looking at this idea of living like no one else in order that later we will be able to live like no one else. That's a Dave Ramsey quote, and it's this idea that we are given as people who have been called a peculiar people, a particular people, who have a certain calling in the world, not to be of the world, but to be in it. And that there are certain practices that God has given us that don't really make very much sense at all if He's not real, if we're not living off of Him. But when we are living off of Him, and when He is real in our lives, that they, they, they stand as a witness and as a signpost to another reality for a world that needs that reality. If you want to live like no one else, you've got to live like no one else. Last week we talked about fasting. It was the single greatest amount of downloads that we've ever received on our iTunes podcast. This week I suspect will be number two as we talk about giving to the poor. Jesus says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He's talking about piety that Jewish people, God's people, would have practiced in the first century. He's telling his disciples, these, as the new people of God, as the fulfillment of the people of God who call God Father, these are practices, these are devotional habits that ought to characterize your life. He's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about praying. He's going to talk about fasting. We did fasting last week. And he says all this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And right after he's just told us that if you want to have God as your father, if you want to act out God as your father, then there's going to be something characteristically different about you. And then our world needs this. You're going to show not only that you love your own tribe, that you greet your own tribe, that you're kind to your own tribe. He says, well, that's natural. That's indigenous to every heart. Everybody likes their own people. But he says, if you want to be true children of your Father in heaven, how do you deal with not your own people? Everybody greets their brothers. What are you doing more than others? Even pagans do that. The godless like their own. But God's people are people who are called to, like God, show generosity to the wicked and the righteous. To people that seem scary to us and to people that feel cozy to us. And on the heels of that, he says, be careful not to do these acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
The act of giving helps us remember two parties that we are always inclined to forget. The act of giving helps us remember two parties that we are always inclined to forget. The act of giving helps us remember how many parties? Two parties that we are always inclined to forget. God and the poor. The act of giving helps us remember two parties that we are always inclined to forget, and that's what Jesus addresses today. Our tendency to forget God and our tendency to forget people who aren't like us, people who have needs that scare us, people that are not rich in the eyes of the world. And as an aside, I want to remind you, as I think I touched on last week, when Jesus says, don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, if that's what you're doing, you'll have your reward in full, and God's not going to reward you. I want to make sure you understand that the same Jesus who just a couple of chapters ago said, let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds in heaven. I mean, your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He's not forgotten what he just said. He realizes when you do good, people will see it. So it's not that people are never going to see or know if you're praying or fasting or giving. He's concerned about doing religious acts merely, solely, primarily to get the eye, to get the applause, to get the kudos of other people. So when you give, as I've told you before in dealing with your motives, when you recognize, hey, Lord, when I'm making this gift, when I'm doing this act of service for someone, I so badly want somebody to notice it. You know, everybody wants to be called a servant. Nobody wants to be treated like one. Servants just do servant stuff and they don't get any credit for it. But when you find yourself wanting to be noticed, when you find yourself thinking, I'm giving, but I, I want somebody to recognize the giving. Well, that's there. You have two principles within you. So one of the things you do is you offer it to God and you say, will you kill this, please? Let us put this part of us to death. And then you go ahead and give or fast or pray. You, you trust that the Spirit of God is producing another kind of life in you and you, you smother the parts that aren't good, the motives that aren't right, and you fan into flame the parts that want to please Him. He's worried that these Pharisees, even in the middle of their religious life, are forgetting God and forgetting the poor. While they're giving, they're forgetting God and, giving the, and forgetting the poor. While they're fasting, they're forgetting God. While they're praying, they're forgetting God. Because they do these things in order to be seen by men. And if that's the reward you want, you've got it. Jesus is urging you to a better reward. The act of giving helps us remember two parties who are always inclined to forget God and the poor. Let's think about this. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. Do it in secret. When you give to the needy, when you give to the needy, one of the primary preoccupations 
of God for his community of people who have been saved by grace, who, who live off of God's largesse, his kindness, his donation of life to us, is that we forget, that we not forget, that we not be stingy with, that we not be tight-fisted or hard-hearted towards people who aren't like us, towards people who need from us, towards people who don't have enough in the world. One of the things that the Pharisees are doing here, and remember this whole idea of hypocrites, means on the stage, in the Broadway of Galilee, in the Broadway of the ancient Near East, you didn't have CGI and you didn't have any makeup, you wore masks. Actors wore masks, and that's what a hypocrite is. It's a stage actor who's wearing a mask. They're concealing their their real self, and they are playing a part so that they will get applause for men. And he's saying, you know what happens when you are going to give a gift to the poor and you call a mariachi band to celebrate it? You call the news station to come and you stand beside them with a giant Michael Scott check? When you draw attention to it, one thing you're doing is you are forgetting the person that you're trying to love by helping and giving and sharing. You're shaming them. You're embarrassing them. You're making the gift all about the giver, not the act of love involved in the gift. I remember in that great book, you like that, Michael, that great book, How to Help the Poor Without Hurting Them, a World Bank survey surveyed all these economically poor people in the world, and one, one quote stood out to me. This woman said, when you are poor, you don't matter to anybody. You're like trash. Nobody cares what you think. Nobody needs anything from you. You're just like garbage. See, there's a lot of shame associated in our world with not having enough money, not having enough social connection, not having an ability to alter the course of your future no matter how hard you try. And when you give in such a way as to highlight your giving, you're actually diminishing these people that bear God's image that he wants to have special attention paid to part of why you don't want to do it. They're actually, in the act of giving, they're forgetting about the poor so that they can exalt themselves. Andrew and I were watching a 30 for 30 on Big East basketball, like all the rest of you. And John Thompson, who used to coach for Georgetown, as the Big East conference was getting wealthier and wealthier and his coaches started making big money, big 6'10", John Thompson said, I wanted to get rich because I know people listen to rich men and people pray for poor folk. He knows in our country, if you have money, then people look at you like you are something. And if you don't have money or you don't have connections or you're not from the right family or you don't have, I heard this 22,000 times on, no, I'm sorry, 28,000 times on election night, poor uneducated white voters If you don't have an education, you are not anything in our world except in the church. You're everything. 
precious because we are the people who have been acted on by God and recognize that the poor and the rich have this alike. The Lord is maker of them both. We are the ones who recognize that when the gospel comes, the new political administration of Jesus, it's multinational. When it comes to earth and reconciliation happens and it's joyful to the poor because you get connected to the church and all of a sudden you have a family even if you didn't have one before. You get connected to Jesus, you have power even if you didn't have any before. You have shared wealth and riches and love and kindness even if you didn't have any before. The coming of Jesus Christ to a community is supposed to be really good news for everybody. And Jesus wants us to practice that when you give to the needy. Don't announce it, but do it. The Apostle Paul says this peculiar thing in Galatians when he's introduced to those reported to be pillars at Jerusalem when he's a new convert who formerly persecuted the church. And they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. And he says this weirdest of all things. They only asked that we would continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do, he says. Eager. The act of giving helps us remember two parties that we're always inclined to forget, God and the poor. A lot of us can live our lives without having much to do with people who aren't that different from we. That's a sign of being privileged. A lot of poor people, a lot of people of color, a lot of people who are minorities in our world, they have to deal with the majority culture all the time to get ahead. We don't have to deal with them. But Christians ought to be saying, how do we demonstrate the benevolence of our God and the dignity that we afford to people who are lonely, who are shut in, who are mentally ill, who don't have parents, who don't have kids who don't have a spouse who don't have enough money it's a worthwhile prayer to say if this morning you're thinking what is my relationship to the poor to say lord would you let the poor have a name and a face for me so that when we talk about poor uneducated white voters you get frustrated because you think well i know them and they have names and faces when you hear about Blacks and Hispanics and immigrants and Muslims, you know them. You can't know everybody, of course. But you can ask the Lord, let my life intersect in some way with somebody who's not in my tribe, with somebody who's not part of my everydayness. Is there a widow lady living in a forgotten holler somewhere? A waitress whose husband's on meth but she has three kids and she's working hard but as soon as her car breaks down she's got no she's got no cushion is there an immigrant family you know it's pretty vulnerable if you've been in another country before and you don't know the language and you you don't know the customs everything becomes a chore when you're poor Life is very hard because you're having to make decisions that we, most of us, don't think about most of the time. When you go to the grocery store, you're making decisions. You're economically poor sometimes between, do I get bread or do I get toothpaste? Which things do I have? Which things do I need to choose? You're always making these 
trade-offs that middle-class people don't have to make so much. It's exhausting. The act of giving helps us remember two parties. We're always inclined to forget God and the poor, and God has given us this opportunity to join him in caring for the least, for the poor, for those who are deprived in some way. And you've heard me say before, a definition I heard from Tim Keller one time, that one of the things about being poor is that you don't have, economically poor anyways, is you don't have choices. You have a limitation of choices. And if you look around this room, the analogy I've used before is if you got up this morning and you just tried to decide which pair of shoes to wear or which shirt to wear because you had so many, you are not poor. Poverty means a limitation of choices and a much inability to affect your future very much. And we have an opportunity to help alongside that. The act of giving helps us remember two parties. We're always inclined to forget the poor, but also God. That's why he's reminding them, when, you, when you're making trumpets, even though you're doing this religious act, you're actually, you're actually doing it as if men are going to give you what your soul craves, as if men are going to reward you in the way that you need. I would urge you to still give. Just don't have the fanfare because you're doing it because you live before the audience of one, your Father in heaven. You're giving because he's given you so much and that you're not going to run out. There are two images that the Bible uses all the time when it talks about giving. Not all the time, I'm sorry. There are two banking metaphors that the Bible uses about giving. Not all the time, but in places. One is for people who give. Lending. Lending. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will reward him for what he has done. He who is kind to the poor, she who is kind to the poor, lends makes a loan to the Lord, and the Lord will repay it. That's very interesting. It's interesting to me because this area of practice, like a lot of them, God actually doesn't ask you to give in some unself-interested way. He recognizes that you and I are frail creatures. That when he says to us, hey, I want you to give, I want you to be sharers. I want you to be generous individually, corporately. I want you to give your life away. I want you to spend yourself on others. He knows that we can come right back with, but have you seen my paycheck? One of the rudest awakenings for a young person, you get out of college, you got $482,000 of debt, and you're like, okay, I should be able to pay this off by the time I'm 92. And you go to your job, and they say, you're going to make $30,000. And you're like, whoa, $30,000. Well, most of you wouldn't think that now, but $30,000? I've only ever had like five bucks in my pocket. And then you go to work, and you get a check, and you're like, well, this is 17 cents. And you realize like, oh, I took out all these taxes and health insurance premiums and Medicare, FICA? What is FICA? They're making up acrostics to rob me. <laughs> and your paychecks are so, they seem so measly. It seems like a 
some kind of bad situation. You're like, God, you really want me to be able to give out of this? Well, if I give out of this, do you know how much new tires for my car cost? Do you know how much braces cost? Do you know how much a gallon of milk costs? Especially if it's not homogenized and pasteurized. God, do you know how expensive life is? And he's always saying, well, of course I do. That's why if you lend to them, I'll pay you back. Paul says the same thing. And God will make all grace abound to you so that you can keep being good. And you can keep being generous on every occasion. And even in Malachi, that famous passage for people who don't give. See, that's what giving to the poor he calls lending. People who don't give he calls thieves. It's not a neutral act. You either are lending to God or you're robbing from God. Because he owns everything. And so he says in Malachi, when the, he says, you return to me and I'll return to you. And they go, how are we departed from you? He says, you rob me. Rob you. What, do we break into your vault, God? Do we lift your iPhone when you weren't looking? How did we rob you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. I set up this system. I want you to listen to it. Bring to me, he says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And then he says the same thing, this reassuring thing. And see, test me in this and see if I won't open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out more blessings on you than you can even imagine. There is this constant reassurance from God. Paul says in Philippians too, I got your gift. Thanks a lot. Oh, and God who's going to keep meeting all your needs too. Constantly reminding us, you can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me. That's why giving helps you remember God. It actually smuggles faith right into the center of something that you are enduring and participating in all the time. Many of you have wished sometimes with money, like I wish with food. I wish I could just be a teetotaler about food. But I keep having to have a relationship with it. And we have a very stormy relationship, food and I. (laughs) On again, off again. Money's the same thing. Jacques Ellul, in his book, Money and Power, says to my wife, who endures with me all the problems of money. You have to have a relationship with money if you're going to be alive in the world. It's a matter what kind of relationship you're going to have. That's why Ellul will say you need to profane it because it's a power. It can, like a spider web, cocoon you in. It can grip you and hold you and entice you. And so you have to profane this sacred thing by giving it away. Having a practice of making sure you're giving away. And God is always wanting to remind you, when you do, don't worry. You won't give away too much. I'll back you up. You have a backstop. You have a stopgap measure. It's called the heavens. And I want you to remember it. When you're paying your bill, I want you to remember God. When you're paying your mortgage, I want you to remember God. When you go to work, I want you to remember God. When you give, I want you to remember God's involved in everything. That's one of the reasons Paul gets for going to work. Some of you younger people and older people have jobs that aren't very satisfying to you. You're eager to inflict your passions on the world. I mean, serve the world with your passions. 
And one of the things you find early on is like you have to do these jobs. It's like, this ain't my passion. I'm passionate about coffee, but not like that. Like serving it as a barista. But one thing that can help you say, look, Paul says, get to work. So you may have something to share with those in need. You can share with those in need through your work. And also you make money and you have extra to give to people. To give to the church, which then distributes to the poor as well. The act of giving helps us remember two parties we're always inclined to forget, God and the poor. This week, there was um, an election. Did you guys know this? It was a surprising election. I think it's safe to say that everybody, no matter what you thought about it, there was an enormous element of surprise to it. One of the things that startled me, as someone who thought there was no good way forward, was the colossal corporate grief of many. And of course, I think the euphoria of many is also troubling and disconcerting, but also the sadness. I understand the sadness, but that much sadness? I don't think I'll be able to come to work for three days. Lena Durham, Dunham, Dunham, girls, whatever, said, I just wept and wept in the shower that night. And I think, why such devastation? Why such devastation? And I read something, which I think giving has to do with why God wants you to be able to remember him. Because he knows that giving, see, the, the clenchedness of your fist has to do with the hardness of your heart. The opening of your hands loosens up your heart. And increasingly, when there is no God to remember, our hands clutch. They clutch at the big and the shiny. You think because politics is now ubiquitous, which means everywhere, omnipresent. You think because politics is omnipresent, that means it is also omniimportant. But it ain't. It's worth reminding your sad friends or reminding your sad self, there will be another election in four years, first of all. And it will be the most important election ever. If my life has shown me anything, it's that each election is the most important election that has ever happened. The fate of the republic rests on it. Because people have no perspective. But we should have compassion because they have no God. We've rooted him out. We've scrubbed him from the heavens. And so the things of earth become so important. And we render to Caesar what is God's. We give our whole selves to political parties. We give our whole selves to governmental policies. We give our whole selves to who's going to be the president. And then when we don't get what we want, whether it's the presidency or whether it's in your family, whether it's your life goal, in relationships or with work, when you don't get what you want, your fists just clutch so tight, you're devastated. You got nothing to back you up. You got nothing to hold you up. One author says, it looks like we're skating on an electronic web with nothing below us. This election shows more and more humans 
do not have a central purpose other than survival and personal expression. The grief that people feel is real because their hopes have literally been smashed because they thought that if they got the right candidate in, that racial reconciliation would happen, that the poor would be lifted up, that women would not be ill-treated, that white people and black people would start singing kumbaya together. And when it didn't happen, that means everything's lost because they got nothing else. But God's given us these practices to practice saying, I give up my money, which means I give up my right to the future. I give up my money, which means do with me and and the world as you wish because you're a good father. Oh, it's, it's endlessly comforting to know that you can tuck your head under your wing and go to sleep at night because God's going to stay up all night so you don't have to. It's endlessly comforting to know when you wake up in the morning, when you go to work, God's been up all night and made the sunrise without even asking your permission. But if there is no God, the world's a terrifying, howling, haunting, lonely place. Giving is for trust. It helps us remember the poor and it helps us to remember God. I close with this. I should have closed like an hour ago. You're saying, I know. In 1984, I saw a movie that was so stirring and fantastic to me. It's the beginning of my movie watching career and it's a a young, slender, 26-year-old Ralph Macchio playing a 16-year-old boy Daniel LaRusso, and in the middle of a cruel summer, he moved from the East Coast out West. You don't know the song? It's a cruel, cruel, cruel summer. And unfortunately for Daniel, he had almost nothing going for him. He was the new kid. He was poor. He had a bike. And there were all these rich kids who did karate. And they were all handsome and rich, led by Johnny Bad Guy. The only thing he had going for him was the love interest of a young Elizabeth Shue. One day he gets jumped at night on Halloween of all times by these bad guys, these punks. When out of nowhere comes his mother's apartment building maintenance man, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi comes out of the shadows like a Marvel hero and karate's them all up. And Daniel is amazed. Daniel can't afford to go to the dojo and learn how to sweep the leg. He can't afford it. And so he asked Mr. Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi, sorry, Harji. He asked Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. He doesn't say it. Karate. Teach him karate. So Mr. Miyagi, this man, he thought only knew bonsai shaping and air conditioning repair, says, okay, show up in the morning, and you know what happens. He puts him to work waxing on and waxing off his Studebaker, or whatever old car it was, or painting the fence up and down, up and down, 
are scrubbing the floor back and forth, back and forth. They're painting the house left to right, left to right. And Daniel, at the end of four days, is sore. His shoulder's hurting. He's miserable. He doesn't understand. Why am I doing this stupid stuff? It doesn't make any sense. He starts cussing Mr. Miyagi. You're treating me like a servant. You're supposed to be teaching me how to do karate. Mr. Miyagi says, things not always as they appear. (laughs) Of course he would say that. Things not always as they appear. And just as Daniel's giving it to Mr. Miyagi, you're supposed to be teaching me. He says, show me, sand the floor. Show me, wax on, wax off. Show me, paint the house. And he does this. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi goes, and Daniel like knows all the defensive moves. In four days, he's been taught how to reflexively, by muscle memory, ward off evil through karate taught by unconventional methods. But you know how it all starts when he tells him to wax on, wax off. Daniel says, I can't. My shoulder's hurt. Can't even move my shoulder, man. So what does Mr. Miyagi do? Which is, this is how we do healthcare in our home. <laughs> it's very much cheaper. Way less effective in my case. But, but he heats up his hands. He puts it on Mr. Um, Daniel's shoulder. And Daniel's shoulder suddenly can wax on. And wax off and paint the fence and paint the house. And he's suddenly a karate master after four days. And at the end, when he's dumbfounded that he's been given these skills through these unconventional methods, Mr. Miyagi bows in honor toward him. And Daniel bows with his head down. He goes, no, Daniel-san. Eyes. Always look in eyes. And I think we are the community that God has given these peculiar practices that sometimes make no sense. Why are we slaving away at these silly things that nobody else is doing? Politics is so big and shiny. Fasting and prayer and giving is so small and seemingly insignificant. Studying the scriptures, praying, these private practices that make us into something, that put us in the avenue of God's grace where we can be changed, where he can put his hands on us and heal us and move us out into the world for all the other broken, impoverished, and hurting people. But we've got to look him in the eye. Giving is an unconventional act. It's an unconventional act that teaches us how to entrust the future to God with open hands. And when those hands are open, we can receive much so that we can keep giving and giving. That's what our Savior has done. Even when we were clenched in fist, he opened up his hands wide and bore our rebellion to offer us life and the promise of endless supply, endless forgiveness, boundless grace. And he says, now participate in the distribution of it. This act of giving that helps remember two parties are always inclined to forget, God and the poor. Remember you're a God who made himself poor that we might be rich, that we might remember God, and that we might enrich the lives of others. Amen.